Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Story Smack. This is episode 79 of Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. My name is A.B. Sigler, audiobook narrator and founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And my name is Scott Sigler, number one New York Times bestselling novelist. And obviously I go to 11. Yeah, there you go. All right. And with us each week uh, is screenwriter Rob Otto. How are you? I am fantastic. And I know you might be disappointed because a lot of times I'll wear a costume. I think every time. And I wasn't I wasn't really planning. But then I met this fine uh, British haberdasher who asked me my hat size and then and then said, oh, I think we have that. And so he picked up this nice little number for me. I love it. Look. Look, look at the black part. You know, None what? More black. You know how much more black that could be? None more None. black. <laughs> For those of you listening None. on the podcast, Rob is gussied up with a rock and roll hat and ready to go. But Rob, I, I'm also in costume today. I don't think you noticed. Uh, yeah. Scott is wearing, in case you guys are listening and not watching, a Norman's Rare Guitar t-shirt, mm-hmm. which we are discussing this week, the absolute... <laughs> crazy mockumentary called uh, This Is Spinal Tap. It is about a fictional band, and um, when he, when the guitarist is showing off his guitars, every one of the guitars in the movie was supplied by Norman's rare guitars. Way to uh, go, Norman. We're going to a shirt like that in the movie. Yeah, yeah. he does. He? We're, going, so. we're going to talk about uh, whether this is a fictional band or not a little later, but let's go ahead and keep well, on rolling with things. First, I want to tell you... Um, as Rob tries to costume himself every time to be thematic with the movie, I try to find a drink, uh, a cocktail that was made. Um, this is a Spinal Tap cocktail. I've never tasted it. It sounds terrible. Tell us what's in it. It's vodka, <laughs> peach schnapps, and white cream to cacao. Okay. So cacao. we're, we're going to taste it. This sounds like a very college drink. It sure does. It's absolutely clear. Not even pouring a full shot because, oh my God. It smells Okay. Does it? All right. So we're now drinking the Spinal Tap, ladies and gentlemen. The Here we spinal go. Spinal Tap. Ooh. I would rather not drink that ever again. That's my... <laughs> I won't say it. Schnapps is a terrible thing. It's a terrible blight on humanity, you guys. <laughs> I would. I will not say it's bad. I will not be smirk someone else's drink recipe. I will say that I would rather not have it again. Uh, Neil Parks in the chat room says it sounds like a great drink. Neil, I agree. It does sound like a great drink. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> all uh, right. All right. So, um, if uh, like oh, I said, oh, this year oh, yeah. or this oh, week, what do we got? Oh, Hold yeah. On. I I have a beverage as well. Um, I, in honor of uh, all of our fallen comrades behind the drum kit, uh, I have a little drummer. <laughs> oh, uh, which is drum drummer. See, right, and some uh, some dry vermouth and some maple syrup and some orange bitters, and mine is just lovely. That's great. Mm. I hope it does not cause me to spontaneously combust. I hope not. Uh, you, I'm sure you'd make a good little green globule, but you know, you're, you're, you're a clever dude. We should, uh, we should work on some screenplays together, something like that. I yes, think. absolutely. Yeah, good idea. Good idea. So uh, today we're going to be discussing the 1984 documentary. This is Spinal Tap. Can you give us the story, movie guy synopsis? I sure can. In 1982, the legendary English heavy metal band Spinal Tap attempt an American comeback tour accompanied by a fan who is also a filmmaker. The resulting documentary, interspersed with powerful performances of Tap's pivotal music and profound lyrics, candidly follows a rock group heading towards crisis, culminating in the infamous affair of the 18-inch stone, 18-inch high Stonehenge stage pop. <laughs> <laughs> so... You're saying that this is an actual document. Okay, real quick. Let's say it's not. It's it's a it's a mockumentary. It's a rockumentary. But Spinal Tap cut two albums. Mm-hmm. I think therefore, and all of the guys in the movie are the guys in the band doing the role. So I believe that Spinal Tap is a real band. Yeah. See, fair I I think it's it's life imitating art, imitating documentary, imitating. <laughs> Uh, that fine line between clever and stupid, yeah. right? Um, yeah. So, so yes, they're actual musicians. Uh, yes, they went on tour to film tour scenes for 
the rockumentary. And yes, they did release another album and have done some performances and some specials, but they're not a real band. Oh, I mean, they I'm did have a comeback stuff. tour, didn't they? Like in like sure. 20 years, <laughs> 10 years ago, yeah. something? Yeah. Come, come back from where exactly? That's, yeah. that's a good point. From the brink, the whole from the brink, Rob. The, band that they, the whole history of the band that they lay out never happened. It's true. I'm just saying. All right, we're split. All I'm saying. Rob says no, not a real band. I say real band. I abstain. You abstain. Okay. Therefore, let's talk about. <laughs> That's great. Wow. Look at us in the middle of the road getting run over by a tour bus. <laughs> That's fantastic. Hey, let, let, how much money does this thing make? Oh, you guys, this is crazy because if you've recently seen Spinal Tap, like the three three of us who are discussing it, um, it holds up as a early 80s movie. It sort of looks that way, the graininess, all that stuff. It was still a $2 million movie to make in 1983. In 2022, that's about 5.3 million. So it is a, yeah, it's a really reasonable, um, I guess they didn't have to pay for script writers. So all that sort of stuff. That's pretty reasonable. And then most of that went to the tour. Right, yeah. they had to film the tour <laughs> yeah, they did. for, for sure. a year ahead of time. That's probably where a lot of the money went. For sure, it made four point seven million dollars, so it was obviously a success. It more than doubled its money, and uh, that would be about twelve point six million dollars today. So, in yeah. in any regard, it did well. But as we'll discuss, it did it. It wasn't what we're about to discuss. It wasn't the juggernaut that, that okay. we're about to okay. discuss. I don't. So think. Uh, let's go over favorite things from movies. A, what is your favorite thing from the movie? <laughs> if anybody knows me in real life, you know I've. Super duper fine hair. I love all. I, I love all the eighties hair. I love all the eighties hair. Love it, Robbie. That's fantastic. Now this is interesting since my vote said they are not a band. Um, my favorite thing is the musicians. Uh, I'm going, because they played their own music. The actors that you know they didn't use doubles for any of the scenes. Right. They play it all. They toured. They wrote all the music themselves. Not a band, but I, I really appreciate. And listen. This music was so catchy after I saw this. First time I saw this was on HBO, right? Probably about 86 or so. Okay. Uh, on the Columbia Record and Tape Club, I got them to send me the cassette tape <laughs> of the This Is Spinal Tap soundtrack and listen to it over and over and over again. Catchy tunes. Yes. How about you? Catchy tunes. Uh, my thing, there can be no doubt of this, my favorite thing is that on the song Big Bottom, all three of the musicians are playing bass. I being a bass guitar. I don't know if you, can you see point. this over here. Can you see some, I love some it. bases I right actually, past? I was going to bring that up, Scott. Yeah. I am so impressed no, 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 that you make. noticed it. You realize there there's no lead guitar. It's all bass guitar. Yeah. That is fantastic. I, and I'd forgotten about that completely until we watched it last night. And I'm like, I'm like, get the fuck out of here. That's so great. So it's pretty sweet. All yeah, absolutely. Bass. Okay. I got to tell you a quick story since I was going right. to tell this one later. So in one of their tours, when they were, um, you know, making an appearance as not a band, um, when they played that song, it was like at a festival. Every bass player from every band at the festival, including actually every member of Metallica, came on stage for Big Bottom. <laughs> Everybody played bass on oh, that song. So they had like on. dozens of basses playing that song. And I think that's freaking awesome, yeah. especially since they're not a band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, I'm not a band can be on stage with Metallica. I like that quite a bit. Uh, okay. Let's talk about the cast and crew, but first a little bit about the overall productions, since this is the first improv movie that we have discussed. And I admit you guys know more about the stuff than I do. So let's cover what, what is an improv movie to start with? Well, there are a couple of things we'll talk about, but we'll uh, start by saying um, the four main characters in the, or actors who play, played the characters in the movie, Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, Harry Shearer, and Rob Reiner uh, came up with the characters in 1978 for a pilot episode of a proposed TV show, um, a sort of a comedy sketch show, which we've seen many of in the decades following um, uh, entitled the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I mean, with originality like that, yeah. how did it never catch on? Can't go wrong. And one of the sketches in the TV show, in the pilot of the TV show, was This Is Spinal Tap, um, where they played for the first time. The TV show didn't get picked up, but the creators kept working on the idea, which eventually became the movie This Is Spinal Tap. Hmm. And the, the cool part of this is, I mean, you know, Scott, we... We've written script together and yep. every single word we consider every single word and it's like gospel and it has to be perfect and succinct and get directly to the point. These guys shot an entire movie with a four page treatment that mm. kind of broke down what? a handful really? of scenes. And Holy then they just cow. said, well, OK, we'll figure out the rest as we go. And that is what they did. I mean, they had some real actors in this movie who would like ask them for the script and they'd say, 
Hey, mate, there really is no script. <laughs> so, and they just rolled with it. And I think that's, that's freaking amazing. Just think about four pages, handwritten just or keep hand going. typed, mm-hmm. and say, okay, now we're going to make a 90-minute movie. Let's go. Huh, unbelievable. And my closest experience to that is The League, which is called Semi-Scripted. So they write out the plot, put mm-hmm. people in rooms, then they just let these brilliant people uh, riff on each other for an hour, two hours, and they cut out like the 14 seconds they want to keep from that. Right. And this is a similar thing. Absolutely. And one of the things that that I'll note here is, I, I just said, they started the idea of This Is Spinal Tap in 1978, and they shot This Is Spinal Tap without a script in 1983, which means they talked about it for those five years in between. And like you say, they're brilliant. These Particular men are brilliant creators. They go mm-hmm. on to have brilliant careers, all yep. of them. Yep. Um, so you have to imagine they had this brilliant mind probably for comedy and improv, and then they just chatted about it forever. I believe that when you get together with Rob and your other boys from yeah, when you're growing lot, up, yeah, it's a yeah. lot like that. It's it's never-ending, back-and-forth, really sharp-witted stuff most of the time until late at night. Um, and I think they probably did the oh, same no, thing. That's, that's when the best stuff comes out. <laughs> <laughs> it's late at night. Honestly, I'm never though, there, it would, so I... <laughs> it would be nice after one of those visits, Scott, if we could edit it down to about 90 minutes, because I bet we got 90 minutes oh, we of got really good stuff. <laughs> We've got mul- about 100 hours of crap. Yeah. Mul- multiple 90-minute movies in our past from just doing the <laughs> improv and shoot, shooting, the, shooting the poop. So this movie did not immediately find an audience. It wasn't until the film was released on home video that it truly found its its cult calling. It has since gone on to garner loads of critical acclaim. Rob, I think uh, it's dating ourselves a little bit. I believe we probably watched this on VHS, you think, back in the day? Yeah, I, I actually watched it. I think I watched it on HBO the first time, but yes. Okay. certainly okay. watched it a number of times on VHS. And then, you know, eventually transfers over to DVD and Blu-ray and all and, that kind of stuff. So it's, I, it's out there. You can find it, and it's fantastic. Yeah. And I also think this is a thing that, doesn't happen anymore because now we consume media in a different way. But back then that was, you, you brought up another thing, some sort of back around the same time, the uh, Columbia house music, uh, clearing house yeah. yeah, where you would get a variety. And now the way we do these both now is digitally. We do that streaming Spotify, that sort of thing. So, there are several movies that sort of found their audience. There's, of course, famously Trolls 2, um, but we've also seen it in the modern day with Dead Snow, which mm-hmm. probably probably was not as easily streaming at the beginning of its career. But mm-hmm. once streaming happened, yeah, that DVD. got really famous, yeah. too. I think it's a great thing. So let's talk about this amazing uh, cast. And it is uh, amazing is not superfluous in this regard. This is not just top to yeah. bottom. Nope. Major, major players in Hollywood either were then went on to be or yeah. were then and continue to be. First, let's talk about Rob Reiner as director, Marty DeBerge. <laughs> Marty DeBerge. Uh, okay, so Rob Reiner believes the reason that this movie wasn't instantly a hit is because so many people thought that it was a real documentary about a real band that they'd <laughs> never heard of, so they didn't go to the theater, which I find fantastic. One screening in Dallas had only 15% um, of the people, uh, only 15% of the people who saw it liked it, and because of this, some of the early VHS copies of the film had a disclaimer printed on it that the film is, in fact, a work of fiction. <laughs> and uh, I also think this is this is my favorite thing about Rob Reiner in this, especially knowing who Rob Reiner goes on to be from mm-hmm. here. He had wanted to play the fourth member of the band, but changed his uh, mind right at the last minute when uh, Harry Shearer reportedly told him that he didn't look great in spandex. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you, Rob Reiner. I feel you. Um, and uh, Big Bottom could have been about him. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And of course, if you don't know, uh, if you haven't seen it and somehow you're listening to us talk about it, uh, Rob Reiner actually plays the director of the documentary and mm-hmm. goes on, even though he started as an actor, as he did here on TV as well. He was in All in the Family, that sort of thing. Me he goes on to have this enormously Mm -hmm. good, graceful, big, huge career uh, directing movie. So that's kind of fun. Uh, It's interesting. I want to jump in on that one. Rob Reiner wasn't going to direct this movie, right? Mm -hmm. He was just going to be part of the creator and and he was going to be in there. Maybe he'd be the interviewer, but he wouldn't also direct. Mm -hmm. Think about Rob Reiner's directorial career (laughs) from this point forward. I mean, this is the first movie he ever directed. And if they find another director instead does Rob Reiner have a directorial? Career? What are, what are I mean, some of, what are I, some I of things know. he went on to do, Rob? What are the other movies he went on to do? Well, I mean, think about it. He does uh, Princess Bride. He does um, When Mrs. Harry Met Sally. Seattle. Yeah. So, um, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He has this. Yeah, when Harry When Harry Met Sally. Yep. I mean, just mm-hmm. just think about all those amazing movies, and and Rob Reiner just you know any any one of them. 
could be considered a classic in its genre. Yeah, mm-hmm. and for sure. Reiner, Reiner maybe doesn't do that if he's just a character in this movie. He probably just continues acting. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting thing because he they're they're all so creative here and they all go on to have multiple uh, sort of triple threat kind mm-hmm. of careers where they're acting or playing or directing or mm-hmm. write or producing. Um, I love this. Uh, they're all they, they, these guys are um, remind me a lot of the making of Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces uh, a decade before, where they are such huge fans of movies that uh, Rob Reiner's character's name is Marty DeBerge, which is an homage to Martin Scorsese, uh, Brian De Palma, Mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg, and Federico Fellini, which is so fun to kind of know that after the fact. Yeah, smart. Um, Clever. And then why don't you tell us about Michael McKean? Did we mention who was supposed to direct it? Penelope... Uh, he, he was talking a little bit about that, that there was somebody. Yeah. But uh, Penelope Spheris was already established as a director, okay. a director of both feature films and documentaries. And they wanted her to do that because she was a lover of rock music. She turned it down because she didn't think she could make uh, fun, uh, poke fun at a culture yeah. she so respected. She went on to direct The Decline of Western Civilization, which was about the L.A. punk scene and The Decline of Western Civilization Part Two, The Metal Years, which is about the Los Angeles heavy metal scene for the 1980s. So if you if you're a fan of this and you don't think it is sort of denigrating the genre, which I don't think it turned out to be, uh, you can check those out, too. And we have, I forgot, I was flashing through pictures. Uh, Mr. Reiner, totally forgot those were there. there just just find the picture of Lenny and, and you'll, you'll be on the right page, buddy. There we go. Now let's talk about Michael McKean as David St. Hubbins, because the vast majority of this film was improvised. All four of the film's main stars, McKean, Reiner, Guest, and Shear, received equal billing on the script. McKean played Lenny Kosnowski on Levine and Shirley for Levine. eight years prior to Spinal Tap. Hello, Levine. Hello, Shoyle. Hello, Shoyle. <laughs> in fact, McKean has worked in comedy, music, and improv, obviously, for the past 45 years since his very first performance in the movie Cracking Ice. He is a writer, and he has been a writer and a cast member on Saturday Night Live, and has dozens of stage credits as well, and is still rocking and rolling in Hollywood Absolutely. today. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think his um, he was the oldest man to join as a cast member of Saturday Night Live, specifically... Um, I think I read this. I mean, it might be in the notes later, and I'm sorry that if it is, or I, I, as I was researching, but he um, was asked to fill in because Phil Hartman um, was tragically murdered mm-hmm. and had an ongoing role that season. He was asked to fill in, but he stayed after for, and wrote for a while as well. Um, look at that hair, though. Come on. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's pretty great hair. It's just amazing because, again, at this point, everybody knows him as Lenny, mm-hmm. right? Yep. I mean, mm-hmm. how do you break out of that? It's, when I watched this uh, a couple of days ago with my sisters who had never seen it before, I had to tell them that was Lenny. Like they didn't see it because of his long hair and he's, you know, he's not, he's playing a much different part. They didn't see it. And this is just a nice way. This proved to everybody that he didn't just have to be Lenny. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. the thing that, um, that, uh, you know, Arthur Fonzarelli went through for decades. Nobody would cast him because everybody sure. just saw him as Fonzie. Right. Mm-hmm. And that he eventually broke out of that. McKean broke out of it much earlier than any of the other actors on that show did. Yeah. Very nice. Very and nice. he very specifically ends up spending most of the rest of his career after Spinal Tap, even to this day, acting primarily. He does mm-hmm. a ton of, of obviously still improv, but he's been on uh, Smallville, I think. He was back in Smallville. He was in the movie Clue. And there's one that's There's one's on right now. Uh, yeah. better, better, better Call Saul. Better, better Call, call Saul. Yeah. That's yeah. the Jimmy's one, yeah. older brother. Yeah, yeah. 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 Where he so stays. Great. So great in that role. Yeah, stays in front of the camera more so than the other uh, three primaries in this mm-hmm. movie. Um and I love that, too, because I think Rob Reiner probably deserved to be an, uh, a director. That, that's where his real grace is. And I think that's true of Michael McKean in front of the camera, more mm-hmm. so than maybe Harry Shearer, who does a lot of voice work. We'll talk about it in a minute. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Christopher Guest, who does everything. Yes. Let's talk about, yes. Yes. Let's talk about Nigel. Yes, Nigel Tufnell. So, um, <laughs> yeah, Christopher Guest is somebody who has, he's kind of split his time. It's interesting to see how each of the four went in different directions and which way their passions took them. But mm-hmm. he has done a lot of stuff directing and a lot of stuff in front of the camera as well. But, yeah, Nigel Tufnell, um, that's who Christopher Guest plays. And uh, um, it's really cool. Some of the fantastic scenes. And, again, they have a kernel for an idea. And then they rolled the cameras and they ran with it. And mm-hmm. the whole the scene, and I love, there's a couple great scenes. I think Nigel has all the best scenes. He does. Mm-hmm. That, that's just me, right? But the scene where he's backstage and, the, and he's got the food. And he has the little bread and the big <sighs> and, and the big 
the big slices of, uh, you know, deli meat. And he can't figure <laughs> out to fold the meat and put it on the bread without folding the bread because then the bread breaks. And, it, and it's so fantastic. And so many rock stars will tell you they have all these very specific things on their riders. And I worked at radio stations for years who would bring in different bands. And you would get, the riders could be, for some of the bigger bands, six eight pages long they mm-hmm. needed a very specific type of water they needed a very specific they needed x number of cases of this beer they needed this kind of food and mm-hmm. that they got that idea from apparently eddie van halen's rider right yeah. van halen was just huge at the time they wanted a giant bowl of m&ms but you had to pick out all the brown m&ms and they would go nuts if they'd walk into the room and see any brown m&ms in the bowl of m&ms and that was the idea behind mm-hmm. that scene and i love that's just like just like a slice of reality for anybody who was connected to rock and roll touring at the time i think that's just freaking hilarious for sure and uh yeah yeah um in the climate ravaged world of 2072 the city of pura stands as a miraculous green haven pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes fires floods and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Okay, and interesting, the brown M&M story, do you know why they did that? Maybe I've heard I, one. I, yeah, I've I, I've you, heard you've that dealt with a lot of writers. Yeah, before. I've dealt oh, with a lot of writers point, myself, eh? yeah. right? And I've heard that. Well, one, I also thought it was green M and M's, but I, wh- why they did that? And they, I've heard them talk about. It. I've heard Van Halen talk about it. Even well, back in the day when Eddie Van Halen could um, say that it was more about watching, to, like uh, trying to figure out whether or not they had read the entire writer. Uh, yes, we want M and M. Stop right there. You miss the part where they say no brown ones, and then when they say we need. We need the lights on the lighting rig hung this specific way and what's called double hung, which is a safety a connection, too. So if the if the one primary uh, connector breaks, it doesn't fall on the stage. That's also oh, I'm, I'm familiar with being double hung. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also in the writer. So their logic was if you don't if the brown M&Ms are there, did you see the part where we needed our safety things done correctly? Or did you hmm. just stop at I want these lights in this configuration on the stage. And I think it's it's not a bad thing. I also think that there are lots and lots of horror stories in Hollywood. And as you guys know, I, I sometimes staff folks at Comic-Con and stuff like that. And I've seen it myself. People just ridiculous because they can be ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But it is, ex- I, I've, I've literally seen two people do it. And I'm not naming them because I have to go back to Comic-Cons. But two people well, in, hey, wait, in hey, years. Is one of them Scott Sigler, the yeah, New York yeah. Definitely not. Author? Yes. <laughs> Definitely yes. not. I better, I better my Bud right. Lights and my Chocodiles. Okay. Let me hit a couple of things. Because everyone, you know, when you think of Nigel, you think about, you know, the the, the amps that go to 11. Mm-hmm. You think about, don't don't even look at it. You're, you're going to ruin it by even looking at it. You know, that scene. But a couple of other scenes. So when he's doing uh, his guitar solo, he's playing, you know, one guitar with his foot. And then he pulls out the violin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
wraps the violin across the strings of his guitar and then tunes the violin yeah. just you know That's now that was a take on um what jimmy page used to do in led zeppelin a lot of times he would play his guitar with a violin bow mm-hmm. but they took it one step further and he actually played <laughs> his guitar with a violin and as we've already talked about the shirt that scott's wearing very similar to the norman's rare guitar shirts and they supplied so. all the guitars and he wore that shirt a similar shirt to that in the movie. So well played, Scott. It's a it's an amazing if you even if you're not a musician, uh, get a chance to go to Norman's Rare Guitars. Go to Norman's Rare Guitars, one of the greatest Where places is in the Norman's country. Rare Guitars. I it's in uh, it's in LA in the Armenian LA? district of LA. And we actually were there for a meeting or something, and he every town he ever goes to, he looks up, are there guitar stores by me, by where I'm staying or where I'm working? And we were walking distance without even knowing it, literally oh, like 400 nice. feet from Norman's Rare Guitars. So we got to go a couple of times. And I'll agree, I'm not a guitar player at all. Um, and it was, it, it's really magical to go it's to a place, place, that's, place that's so sort of hallowed halls, kind of like the library in Dublin. Speaking well. of people with magical Hollywood careers, let us talk <laughs> oh about God, Harry yes. Shear as Derek Smalls. Good, eh? Uh, so uh, Harry Shear, uh, sp- it, is definitely a method actor. You know him today as the voice of many of your favorite characters on The Simpsons, among other things. Um, But back in the day, he's obviously in front of the camera. He spent a few days on tour with the British metal band Saxon as research before doing This Is Spinal Tap. He got stories from the band and based some of his Derek Smalls character off Saxon bassist Steve Dawson. Um, I love it. You hear Saxon, you'll hear Dawson talk about this today, and he's like, we didn't know who he was. We just thought he was some rock journalist. And then they see this movie and they see him and they see him acting out some of the stories that he saw from them while they were on tour. And they're like, oh, oh we didn't know. He just thought some bloke, you know, with a pencil. <laughs> also, I had a really hard time choosing between the hair and this moment on stage as my favorite thing about the movie. There's a moment where um, they are coming out of pods at the beginning of the show and Derek Smalls gets stuck in his and he's still playing his heart out and everything else. And now 20 40 years later, it's sort of a very much like the pod that Neo comes out of in the Matrix, but hard glass. So it's even more insane. And uh, he that is inspired. That was inspired by the time that, yes, guitarist. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, drummer Alan White got stuck in a giant seashell on stage and almost <laughs> ran out of air. And of course, there are I have seen I, you've, you've seen this happen a hundred times. There are thousands of stories. There's also this is very reminiscent of the Harry Houdini story. Which probably, you know, contributed to his death a few days later, that oh, him getting yeah, trapped in Yeah, let's laugh that. about that. Thanks, yeah. Hey, well, come on now. Hysterical, hysterical. But I'm, I'm talking about improv, and I'm talking about actors doing, like, this sort of risk for their, for their art, which, mm-hmm. you know, scripted plots don't do. But he's like, I'm just going to keep... I mean, I know that he was actively locked in there, but Al, uh, Alan White wasn't. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Um Oh, this is when asked uh, years later, when asked on Twitter how Derek came to be wearing a Shrewsbury Town uh, football jersey. Uh, Harry Shearer said, that was me hanging around London and seeing a selection of football jerseys at a corner stand. The Shrewsbury one caught my eye since Derek dreamed of, like Sir Elton, buying a team someday. But he, he probably wouldn't be able to afford a pr- Premier League tee, so he bought that one instead. <laughs> and we've seen, we have a little picture of that. Nice uh, little dug on Shrewsbury, though, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And let's, there's a, those of you not watching at home, we were showing a picture of the band back together again as elderly gentlemen <laughs> and elderly gentlemen. showing them side by side in their rock and roll picture. And then of course, have Stonehenge. Do we have anything about Stonehenge? Stonehenge? No. Well, oh, Rob, there is something about Stonehenge, Rob, that, that oh, yeah. didn't Stonehenge help them get this thing made? What? Didn't this uh, stone? <laughs> Stonehenge helped them get this thing, this whole oh, movie yeah. made. So, so this is interesting. So a lot of people, um, so there's this famous story about, um, you know, Ozzy Osbourne and, and the band. And they had an incident where they built this big set piece mm-hmm. and it was too big to fit Ozzy Black stage. Sabbath. Black mm-hmm. Sabbath. Yeah. That mm-hmm. happened. Yeah. Black Sabbath. That happened in 83. This movie came out in 84. And a lot of people thought that they were playing on that with the Stonehenge thing, which I'll get into in a minute. But turns out. They shot the Stonehenge scene of them on stage. And Stonehenge, you know, is supposed to be obviously a giant set piece. And when uh, Nigel draws it out on a napkin, he says 18 inches instead of 18 feet. And so they made the monument 18 inches. And it was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf in the scene, right? But they shot that in 82. It helped them get funding 
mm-hmm. for this film because they shot that and they shot a couple of small improv scenes that go along with it and kind of presented that as a little 20 minute mini movie to say, Hey, give us money to make the real movie. And that's what helped them get it. So they actually shot that scene before the thing happened with black. Do you know, did they do the, did they do the cutaway stuff to the manager for that small one? Or is it just them on stage? I think it was mostly just them on stage and then having some interactions between the main characters afterwards. They edited a lot of extra stuff onto that, including, you know, his girlfriend, Janine and all that kind of stuff. Right. But yes. So yes, but yes, the dwarfs almost crushing the, uh, the Stonehenge monument. That was all part of the original scene they shot to get this movie made. And I got to tell you, I think they made an excellent choice to make that scene because that is a, that is just hilarious. I also understand uh, from an improv perspective, I love that they do the Stonehenge thing. You can, you can see it. You watch him write 18 inches. But, mm-hmm. of course, at the moment, we all assume this is, you know, a drought or whatever. We don't think about it until it comes out to be actually 18 inches. Or you don't, and you don't really proof. notice right. that he put two dashes instead right. of one dash. It's just a very quick little cutaway, but you don't think about it. Right. And one thing which I love so much is there's never, never once before they appear on stage a mention of dwarves nope. dancing around Stonehenge, which isn't really a thing about Stonehenge. It's not like that goes with Stonehenge. And it's improv, so they were just like, yes, let's let's add that here. Um, so which, great. Yeah. So great. Um, you mentioned earlier, Robbie, that um, that uh, th- there are all these writer, weird writer um, requests and things like that. Um, and since the movies come out, these, this entire giant list of musicians has mentioned like, Oh yeah, these, the things that they do and some of the trouble and some of the, like the prop failures and all that, this is stuff that really happens on tour. It's this giant list. Yeah. Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, Eddie Van Halen, Sting, Steven Tyler, Eddie Vedder, Tom Waits, the edge from you too. Come on, man. Liam Gallagher and D Snyder all say like, no, no, yeah, they, they nailed that. <laughs> Some of this stuff actually happens. Honestly, yes. the guys from Saxon um, mm-hmm. accused them of actually um, recording, putting recording vices, <laughs> devices in their travel tour buses. Because they're just like, I swear, word for word, that is exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they, they accused them of stealing directly from their tour bus. So pretty impressive stuff. Uh, now we're going into some trivia. Let's talk about some of the cameos in here. We got, let's go back to actors, and we've got Paul Schaefer. Oh, yeah. Paul yep. Schaefer. Paul Schaefer is Artie of Fufkin. course. Polymer Records. Artie <laughs> Fufkin. Oh, yeah. hey, how are you doing? Artie Fufkin. <laughs> Polymer Records. And, how, does, uh, how many times does he say his name? Like many, eight or ten many, times? Many, 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 many. 30 seconds. Those of you who don't know music or late night with David Letterman, yep. this is a made one of the major session musicians in the history of the world. And of course he was a band director. Letterman's Letterman show. band director. He's a he's a big, big, his... big deal in the world of music. Who's this been? Mm-hmm. This is Dana Carvey. Uh Dana Carvey playing uh this is a movie uh early in the movie, there's a cocktail party scene, and uh he's playing a mime waiter along mime with Mime Waiter. Yeah. Mime is money. Right. Let's go. Along mime is money. And Billy that Crystal, scene who is Billy also Crystal. a mime waiter <laughs> playing a cameo here. He's the one who says mime is money. Let's go. <laughs> and Angelica Houston. This is Angelica Houston. Uh, friend. Did you not know this, Robbie? Uh, this is the thing. I didn't catch this until we were watching. I watched it a couple nights ago with my sister. We watched the credits because I couldn't remember Bruno Kirby's name. The guy yeah. who plays the uh, the limo, limo driver. driver yeah. It was driving me nuts. So we just watched the whole thing. And then all of a sudden, Angelica Houston's name popped up. And I'm like, Angelica Houston? Where is Angelica Houston in this movie? I'm just like, did she get edited out or what? No. Nope. She's the woman who built the 18-inch high mm-hmm. Stonehenge yep. statue, you know, set piece. And we looked at her picture. We're like, oh, my God, that's Angelica Houston. Like yep. Academy Award winner Angelica Houston. Had a very small part in this movie. Did she uh, win an Academy Award for this movie? No. no. I, I, okay. I don't probably just a nomination. But I'll yeah. say this. This is an interesting thing that's happened a handful of times. You see, because it's an improv movie, an actor like Angelica Houston probably doesn't improv as much as Harry Shearer does, but absolutely can do it mm-hmm. and, and work her way there, as Listen. as does Howard Hessman, who has a, has a small cameo. Yep. Um, they are actors who can do this job, no problem. When I find it really wonderful, and um, obviously this is a great little cameo, um, but I find it really wonderful in the lobby, the Howard Hessman scene in the lobby, they walk into that scene uh, talking with their road manager about the album can't come out because the cover... The, the the company finds sexist. And again, improv, no script. 
So they must know they're going in there and this is the general problem. But the 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 true sort of blank, just blank, dense faces of the band, like they did a good, they did a really good job at and, that. And it is stare. right, and it is the way. I mean, we've all done this in our lives. There is a moment where you're like, oh, I see the they never have that moment. They never have. The, they never see the difference between, well, that's uh, like punching up and you're punching down, or whatever. They never do that. But you see the moment where you're like, oh, I see they're children. Oh, this I whole see. band yes, is because, just children. <laughs> because the other rock star who's much more successful than them, his album had him tied down and being whipped by women. <laughs> yes, and they're exactly. like, yes, because he was the victim. And in yours, you made the woman smell. Oh, he's flipped it. Oh, he flipped it. Such they, turned, twist. they turned it around. It yes. It. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's a fine line between clever and stupid. And I yes. will say also, it is quite a fine line between <laughs> acting stupid and letting people see your character as stupid in an improv way. Like you could be goofy or you could just be that yeah, smart and that dense. Hard. And it's a beautiful moment, I Listen, think. Listen, uh, to some of us, being stupid comes next. <laughs> <laughs> This is lovely. <laughs> ratings Ratings are a regular feature on the Internet Movie Database, IMDb, with every title featuring a user-generated rating on a scale of 1 to 10. Almost every title, because this is Spinal Tap, has its very own scale, and of course, it goes to 11. And it has an 8 rating, which I guess then makes it a 9. Yeah, I... Yes. Why don't you make this ten and turn that up to nine? I don't know. Because this well, doesn't, that, to a, doesn't that mean it's a seven? Because if it's eight on eleven, wouldn't that be seven? Don't on start a with me with math, 10? Mister. I know my math. Yeah, you He's a writer. Your math. But there's another point there, eh? Right? Where Rob Reiner says, "Well, yeah, okay." So you, he's telling him everybody's rocking out there at ten. You can't go any higher. We built these to go to eleven. Rob Reiner says to Nigel, "Why don't you just make ten louder?" And there's just this great comedic moment of again that that stone face where it looks like his brain is working, and then he says, "But these go to 11, right?" And it's just like, "Damn it, that is so great!" And that's what makes Christopher Guest so amazing in this movie is that he knows there has to be a pause while Nigel tries to, you know, mm-hmm. digest pause. what Marty just said, and, those- and then he has to respond. And those that example and the one that I was talking about in the lobby of the hotel mm-hmm. with Harrod Hessman lead us, all the people watching the movie, to the moment when Stonehenge descends to the stage. And, you know, this is the first second that the band mm-hmm. is seeing it because the tour manager was like, well, we paid for it. We commissioned it. That's We're definitely ordered. using it. We're not doing another one. That's that's (laughs) great, too, because everybody sees it at a different time. Mm -hmm. Nigel sees it last because he's facing the crowd and Uh. he's playing his little mandolin thing. (laughs) First one to see it is David St. Hubbins, Michael McKeon, and he's just like slack jawed. He's just like he's just his mouth is agape as he's watching it lower down. And, you know. You know, Harry Shearer is just kind of like, oh, whatever. I'm just going to keep playing my bass. It's, yeah. That's what bassists do, right, Scott? Right. I don't care if, I don't care if the set's on fire. Man's got to keep the bass line going. I got to keep time with the drummer. Okay, so we're just going to keep going. Later, and then eventually Nigel sees it after he turns around. And he's just like, oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> so two very, uh, very significant cultural wins for this movie that was moderately successful at the box office. going on to become a cult classic. In 2011, Time Out London named This Is Spinal Tap the best comedy of all time. Hmm. Entertainment Weekly, Empire, The New York Times, and the American Film Institute have all singled out the film in similar lists. And in 2002, This Is Spinal Tap was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry because it is a film that is considered, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress. This this little this little thing they got together to improv and shoot many hours of footage. It turned out to be great. Yeah, I was. I, I do like that you became British when you read read off yes. the, the significance <laughs> the li- of that movie. There. Everyone knows the Library of Congress is British. It's the way it is. <laughs> That's the way, it's the way, it's the way all it is. Of that works. But but think about it, right? It's what A said originally on how it didn't do very well because a lot of people thought it was supposed to be a real documentary. Uh-huh. Nobody had considered making a fake documentary mm-hmm. before. Right. I mean, there'd been some other things where they pretended it was found footage or, or that kind of thing. But a straight nuts and bolts playing it straight front to back mockumentary. This is the that first term. mockumentary. This yeah, is the so. first wow. mockumentary. I mean, that's like it just like never occurred to anybody. And these four freaking geniuses 
got it together and we're talking about it, what, 40 years later? I mean, that's unbelievable. It's Mm -hmm. fantastic. Yeah. And uh, when we were talking about the budget at the top of the show, um, you you said probably all of that budget went to the tour. And I instantly thought of this, that we know now after the fact that about 100 hours of improv footage Mm -hmm. was shot to make this movie. And um Mostly because everything was ad-libbed and they just let the cameras roll as they tried to sort of figure it out and suss it out and whatever. And most of the footage has never, ever been released. So you you see the movie you see and the only other bit of footage that was released there uh, uh, from from all the hundreds of hours of footage was um, about 70 extra minutes on the 1998 special edition DVD. And I find that amazing because, of course, back in the day in 1983, the only option was actual film. So now we see this all the time. People shooting, like you said, found footage movies or like really low budget horror movies like Paranormal Activity. That's digital shooting. Cut scenes, right? Uh, Directors, cuts, all that kind of stuff. No, most of the stuff ended up on the floor and was never seen again. I got to tell you, though, if if this exists, if there is 100 hours of footage of these four guys and all the ancillary cast, just riffing as the band's final tap, I would pay upwards of four dollars for that. I'm just Absolutely. saying there's money. There is money to be made if you just put that on some giant download. I will let my computer download it for days yeah. just to watch that. And I would watch that. And the other thing about this movie, it's a mockumentary. It was improv. These things are known. They've been known throughout the history of the movie, although not so well known in the beginning, obviously, when the movie was released. Mm-hmm. We just discussed there are no bloopers. We've never seen a blooper, which have to exist for improv. You see mm-hmm. a lot at the end of the 40 year old virgin where they show you yes. uh, uh, Michael. What, what's his name? What? What, what, were you going uh, to say Michael Steve Scott? Carell. Are you, were you yeah, about to say Michael Scott? I was trying to remember. Steve Carell uh-huh. uh, chose, if, if you're familiar with the 40-year-old virgin, if not, tiny spoiler alert, uh, he gets waxed, his chest wax for the first time. And Steve Carell had never had his chest wax and, and didn't want to practice that until he was doing it. So everything he screams like, oh, Mother Pumpkin, or whatever, all mm-hmm. of that is him Kelly Clarkson <laughs> actually <laughs> reacting. There are things that you can see didn't work in the movie because mm-hmm. the other character, the other actors cracked up as their characters and that broke wasn't character. good. They broke yep. character, right? That has to exist in those hundreds of hours of footage and I want it so bad. I'll throw this I out. Agree. I'll throw this out to Rob. Um, I watched this when it was 1984 and they just kept rolling other footage over the credits and yes. we were not to the post credit concept yet until Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which came a couple years later. But was do you, any idea if this was the first movie that just kept showing stuff underneath the credits or is that something that happened before? Wow, that's a fantastic question. If it had happened before, it probably hadn't happened much. Yeah. Right. Um, and the idea, because I remember, you know, you know, hearing about it, um, you know, hearing about the director of um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, whose name, why? John Hughes. Uh, Right? John Hughes. Thank you. I was thinking John. I got stuck on Angelica Houston. I was thinking John Houston. Yeah, so, fair. Whole, whole, whole different guy. Whole different guy. Glad right? it was John but Hughes. John Hughes <laughs> has a great conversation about where that, you know, that scene where, um, you know, he, he's on the bus and he gets the warm gummy bear from the one girl and stuff. They didn't know what to do with it. And they realized, well, this is just about as long as the entire post, you know, the credits. So let's just kind of include it with the credits. Not very many movies had done that. Um, Mm -hmm. We get Cannonball Run, you know, they show some bloopers as the credits are going, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, but no actual new footage, new scenes. It probably was also pretty innovative at the time when they put it together for the suspense. Well, and you remember that uh, the the Cannonball Run footage is footage that makes those actors look better. Right. Yeah, like they're all they, they are, yeah, but they're, they're not, not. They're not yeah. like nobody's got snot coming out of them. Nothing is is it's mm-hmm. not corpsing. It's it's just making those char- those people yeah. more accessible and human, but also quite pretty. And but these I find, were additional scenes. These yep. were in character additional scenes. And my God, when they show the keyboard player in that close up during the cross credit scene mm-hmm. and his teeth are just all Messed like up. very British. Yep. Very, very British teeth in that guy. Thank God they didn't show more of him during the movie. It's almost unwatchable. (laughs) But you find it again. You find a similar thing happen. Also improv, but not comedy action in Jackie Chan's movies. When Jackie Chan uh, breaks into um, uh, ex-Hong Kong cinema, Mm -hmm. he 
runs all those things at the end to show that they are really working hard for you to enjoy this movie. And there's yeah, they're almost like there. stunt, yeah. stunt bloopers. They'll they are, stunt and they're purposefully stunt again, bloopers. Bloopers that yep. go out of character, unlike what they did at the end of this movie. Yep. And during and this exactly. entire movie, not one of them breaks character. Ever. I was a not little. I was. We. I've watched this. Uh, one of your assistants, Chad, asked how many times we've watched this. I said at least ten. I'm not entirely sure. But one of the things that surprised me after many, many years between my last watch and the one we just watched last night was the amount of really solid dramatic performance mm-hmm. that these guys put in. They have to put in this dejected, despondent uh, mm-hmm. visage in order to make the comedy work a little bit better. And the one, of course, having having been on tour and going to bookstores and going to bookstore and having one person come in and get something signed oh, and just yeah, sit there for an hour. Scene. You watch them and then like they they captured that was that was rock bottom for the band. Like the whole band is here and significant others with label support. Everybody's here and no one shows up to getting signed because they're just done. Their performances in that and in a bunch of other places, they realize their career has fallen to this rock bottom. They were really good. It wasn't just slapstick comedy. Well, and I think you need those moments so that that the denouement right at the end where Nigel is standing off to the left or like stage left or something saying like, you got to choose, right? I left the band. You want to be Spinal Tap or you 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 want your girlfriend to run the band? What do you want? Like, he doesn't say anything like that. He just stands there and looks at uh, David St. Hubbins, like, emphatically. Who makes, who makes the decision. You who see him the decision, leading yeah. up to it. He keeps looking back at Nigel, keeps yep. looking back while he's playing his guitar, and then he does the one head he shift. He does, yeah. Says, the, Come on. And Nigel's like, wait a minute, are you are you saying what I think you're yeah. saying? Yep. And then he does it again. I mean, that moment, not a single word. They're right in the middle of a freaking song, yeah. right? Yep. Nigel runs on stage. And there are those, yeah. I, think, I think you need those dramatic moments in improv so that you know that these people are working very hard and you believe the character. Both things have to happen so that if things go a little sideways in the plot because it's an improv, you stay with it because you're mm-hmm. like, these people are talented and this story is worth it. And but you also you also need Derek Smalls just blowing his nose and picking his nose with a uh, with a Kleenex while they're having that moment of failing at the record store at the same time. Absolutely, freaking genius! They're just genius. A really lovely story to come out of this that I only learned today from reading the script is Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, yeah. The Jamie Lee Curtis saw a photo of Christopher Guest as Nigel. In Rolling Stone. With that hair. It's the hair, right? The hair. Okay. It must be the hair. Young That's Nigel. what I'm saying. And apparently Jamie Lee Curtis told herself, he's cute. I'm going to marry him. And so she did. Curtis gave her number to his agent and guest didn't call. <laughs> Which you're like, what Chris, on earth? Buddy, is, Chris, what, what are you is, doing? Man? What on earth is going on when Jamie Lee Curtis in 1984 says, hey, honey, give me a call sometime. Call me, maybe. You, and you, you're like, you saw her in trading places. By oh, this my point. gosh. You, Chris? Oh, on, my buddy. gosh. Oh, my gosh. And as fate would have it, they ran into each other and eventually wed in 1984 at Rob Reiner's house. Mm-hmm. It's quite wow. beautiful. Quite beautiful. You can't write that stuff. Just like this movie. You can't write this stuff either. Um, I, and we'll, 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 we'll rip on this to, to finish up. But the other thing, as a musician and who does other things, I write too. And they are, you know, they are musicians who do other things and act I like, too. I like it Scott looks at himself as a musician who also writes. Dabbles, you know, yeah. like, Dabbles a little bit here and there. Two dozen published <laughs> items and novels, but I'm a musician who also writes. Um, but, you know, you look at, they insisted on writing all the music themselves, playing the instruments themselves, and you, you go see, what was that La La Land was mm-hmm. one where the level of musicianship was so drastic. And I'm, I think he may have learned, the lead may have learned a lot of that. But it's not quite the same as you watch someone you know as an actor playing really intricate pieces of music. And you're like, when they cut away to the hands, there's a reason they cut away the hands because that's not that person's hands. It Even though it's a it's a mockumentary, mm-hmm. it was still a really bold choice with these guys. Like, no, we're going to record all the songs, know the songs inside and out so that we can act and play why we're doing it and actually yeah. perform live is amazing. And these 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 actors, these people, these humans, they go on uh, to, to have a reasonably successful improv career musically and not musically. You see Best in Show that mm-hmm. that pairs um, uh, uh Who's David St. Humbins? <laughs> um, Harry Shearer and uh, Michael McKean and yep. Eugene Levy. Um, you see, there's another. There's my, the mighty a uh, mighty Wait, wind is the musical. Mighty one. wind, right? Uh, yeah. Waiting um, for waiting for Guffman. <coughs> right. Waiting the, for Guffman. The, the Guffman. Stage, right? And they do this um, yeah, really for, well. For your consideration, again. all of these oh. these mock. They're kind of the same idea that they're mockumentaries behind the scenes. That is probably primarily improv. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. Primary, for sure, uh, mostly improv. And that idea that they can be so comfortable with each other, we see that come into TV in recent years. We see The Good Place being scripted, but uh, what did you call it? Semi-scripted. Semi-scripted, um, yeah. And uh, Schitt's Creek being that way. The, 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 the actors knowing each other so well. And you don't yeah. generally see that in movies, even if they're sequels, unless they're filmed close together. So that's why some of the Harry Potters were filmed close together, because the... Uh, kid actors were growing up also true of back to the future back in the 80s they filmed two and three together mm-hmm. because of progression of time and now we know probably michael j fox's diagnosis with parkinson's disease get all that out of the way but you see the um familiarity that they have work to our benefit as the audience because they know each other so well yeah i imagine scotty i think you can probably <laughs> talk to this they did the tour to all the different college towns before they shot a lot of the set Pieces, and mm-hmm. they shot some of them while they were on the road. But I mean, 24 seven, when you're on tour with a band, you're all together, you're working together, you're yeah. lugging the equipment yourselves, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that you have to really get to know those other people. Yeah, right? you could the sense of familiarity with these guys and even down to their stage motions, how they didn't get in each other's way. Of course, they would have cut away from that, but everything looked natural and flawless. They really captured that these two guys have been buddies since they were uh, nine and ten. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a really deep, long lasting relationship. They got to create all this stuff together. They captured that exceedingly well. And yeah, but that scene when they're signing stuff, they're all just you can tell by the the body proximity. There's no three foot cushion. They're all pushed together because that they've been in a van. They've been in a bus for decades and they're totally comfortable with each other. And the three of us have a have an not quite the same, but similar experience back in 2009 when with the rookie tailgate tour. It was one of the first things that Scott and I did together as as uh, a working business. And this never shows up in Spinal Tap, but is the bulk of the time that these gentlemen spent on tour. You very rarely see them in the van. You very rarely see them in the tour bus. You very rarely see them bored out of their minds, doing their laundry, going grocery shopping for non-perishable goods that they can keep in their rucksack or whatever. But this is we did this. Uh, We three uh, combined did a 27, 24 city tour in 27 days that went all around the United States. And it was get in the rental car, backloaded with books, a little cooler of ice and sandwiches and stuff. And um, they created this community of the band that they've known each other their whole lives, that they're willing to be on the road musicians without any of that. And we see a ton of that in other on the road movies, other actor movies. Most of Almost Famous (laughs) is all about them doing the not playing on stage part. And we don't see a lot of that, but we didn't lose any of the camaraderie and family that that band has because they're terribly good actors. That's a good point. When I think about, you know, when I was driving Scotty around for one leg of that tour, Mm -hmm. I remember the times of us in the car together. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, our, our sequel to the last starfighter that we were going to write (laughs) and just, and and different comic books I was reading and that kind of stuff. I don't think about the, you know, 90 minutes we sent at a bar with Sigler talking to his junkies. That was, that was the work part. It was the, the stuff away from that that I enjoyed the most, and yeah. I think about them. So, and yeah, there have to yeah. be moments of that for Spinal Tap, uh, the band Spinal Tap. But we don't we don't need to see it to know that it's they're, there. They're not a band, by the yeah. way. I wasn't sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They did play the Royal Albert Hall. I'm just I saw that somewhere in here. What did I yes, see? Yes, absolutely. They did. Yeah, yeah so they, they did. They a... got together um, in the Royal Albert Hall, and they they. Um, Taped it. It was filmed. They did like a one-off, um, you know, a return of Spinal Tap TV uh-huh. special about it. But yeah, I mean, for not being a band, playing the Royal <laughs> Albert Hall must be a really big deal. Can't and be this bad. is when Break Like the Wind. Now, I got a story about Break Like the okay. Wind. So this came out when we were in college, Scotty. And Scotty okay. knows. Well, actually, we both worked at our respective colleges. Um, um, radio, radio stations. stations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was, I was the music director. And, and, you know, we were more of an alternative station with maybe a little rock there. When Break Like the Wind came out, I absolutely added a song from that album <laughs> onto my college radio station. I'm not sure it. anybody else but me appreciated it, but damn it, we played that song, Break Like the Wind. So, yes. It was I'm going to have to go. As soon as the show's over, I'm going to Spotify to see what their, <laughs> their play count is like. I have it on CD. It's it's right yeah. there in the yep. other room. I, I looked today to see if I still had my break like the oh wind my gosh. CD. Absolutely. Of course I, you do. Of course you and do. And wherever my cassettes are, I guarantee my well-worn copy of the This Is Spinal Tap soundtrack yeah. is you, you, in there as well. You can now, tell those guys are doing great because it, talk about easy money. 
they throw together a club tour yeah. and go out at their current age and play, you oh would not be able to get a ticket. Yeah, like, they wouldn't be, be able to book a club They would be raking tour. in money. Yeah, they wouldn't be able they, to yeah, book they a club tour. Yeah, they'd have to go bigger. Uh, question, oh, oh, Robbie. Hopefully somebody from Marty DeBerge's office <laughs> just, just randomly, uh, you know, uh, searches for Spinal Tap and comes across this, this, yeah, uh, put this back, podcast. Put it back on, yeah. And, and, and <laughs> we, get, we get front row tickets to wherever you guys open, okay? That's, That's what we're sure. doing. So, Robbie, I have a question. You said you have the CD. You can see it. And... I'm sure, just like everybody else, you've done a purge of CDs since mm-hmm. uh, streaming oh. music has happened. And yet, when yeah. you do that purge, Spinal Tap st- or um, uh, uh, Mighty Wind stays. The, the no, break, 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 like the wind stays. Question: Yeah, do you have a CD player in your home? Um, if I do, I have no idea if it's in working order. So, yeah, I've got a piece of recorded music that I have saved through half a dozen moves and three decades. And yet I have no way to play it. But guess what? It's still there. And you have a piece of recorded music that you will keep forever from not a band, according to you. Not a band. It doesn't. It doesn't take up much space. It know, doesn't. I'm not. I'm CD just saying that's the heart. That that's the heart. That's. That I also this movie don't have is. a cassette player, and I guarantee I still got a whole bunch of cassettes in the basement yep. somewhere. Are those also from not bands? Uh, yeah. Well, there's this is Spinal Tap. Well, you know I know at least one of them is. All right, there you go. But I that that sort of speaks to the heart of the movie that that we love that and that you see that when you're doing and you're right it's it's completely a, a throwaway decision but you're like mm-hmm. get rid of this get rid of this get I haven't even listened to the White Album in 40 years get rid of this get rid of this get rid of this. Definitely keeping can't, Break can't Like the Wind. Can't get rid of I'm, not, I'm not sure I got rid of my Beatles either. I'm just yeah, possible. Fair. Fair. But that being said, and again, listen, their music is a sign of the times. It's very misogynistic. It's all about, you know, yeah. sex and drugs and rock and roll. But hey, listen, even if you took the rock and roll away, as long as the sex and drugs were still They're there. They're still there. Still <laughs> <doing okay. laughs> but, but that's, it's okay that this music, wait, I better make sure I phrase this right or else you know, I'm going to get the police after me, but Yes, the music is misogynistic, but it is a statement about how poorly some of the music was written back in the day and how misogynistic it was <clears> that <throat> they did that on purpose to mock the misogynist nature of yes. rock yeah. and roll music, especially heavy music. I think so. Uh, I can still enjoy yeah. a song like Big Bottom or Sex Farm or uh, well, you know, really, I think. Really, I think they made they made their statement though to say this band was capable of so much better than these misogynistic lyrics with lick my love pump. I think that was a breakout. It was a a lovely little number, part of a trilogy. If any of you listening have not ever heard Steel Panther, they are in a modern band. They are a band right this minute, Mm -hmm. and they are the perfect tribute to Spinal Tap. They sort of know it. But it's a beautiful like continuation of that. Like, yes, I know, but it was the '80s with the hair and Tongue the misogyny and, and that stuff, and yep. it's still going to be great. And they are great. So if so, you haven't heard them here, uh, Spotify them. One more point before we finish up, and A closes us out of the show. Metallica's 1991 eponymous Black Album cover was inspired by Spinal Tap's <clears throat> "Smell the Glove." It's hard to get uh, more of an homage yeah. than than one of the the biggest metal albums, if not the biggest metal album of all time, being done as an homage to this movie. It's crazy. Yeah. It's great. Uh, and, so, and yeah. Scott, how much how much more black could it be? None. It could be none more black. It's none more. None black. more black. Exactly yeah. right. So that actually does do it for Story Smack for this uh, this month. We do Story Smack once a month on the second Saturday of every month. We'll be back on March twelfth. Uh, discussing Batman Begins because there's a new Batman movie coming out on March 4th. Can't so catch wait. up, getting ready for Can't that. Can't wait. Uh, and until then, Rob, I think we're gonna we're gonna sign off from you. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of your weekend, sir. Hats off. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna crank. I'm gonna crank it up to 11. Yeah, you go crank it later, buddy. <laughs> later. Uh, well, well, you know, listen. There is an, uh, an armadillo in my pants. It's quite frightening. <laughs> All right. Good, baby. All right. So that, as I said, is it for episode 79 of Story Smack. You can find Scott and I online. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram. And his Facebook page is Facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I am at a real girl on Twitter and at a dot real 
dot girl on Instagram. And we live stream Story Smack every second Saturday as a mention of the month at Facebook.com slash Scott Sigler, Twitch.tv slash Scott Sigler, and YouTube.com slash Scott Sigler. And if you don't know this, in addition to Story Smack that we do once a month, once a week at 6 p.m. Pacific time on Saturday, where you are watching this right now, we do something called Sigler in Place. It's an hour-long conversation where we hang out with you guys just like we did today, but we talk about general uh, Siglerism stuff or general world stuff or that sort of thing. Come join us. And, of course, we the thing we're mostly famous for or semi-famous for is that we release an unabridged episode of a serialized novel every week, one of mine. You can get episodes for free every Sunday via iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. If you want to get free fiction crammed into your ear holes with or without a glove around it, just go to scottsigler.com slash subscribe for links. And we really do hope you do subscribe to hear Scott's books and more Story Smack goodness and Sigler in place in the future. And let's switch over to the number one cam. All right, that's it. We're going to sign off. There it is right there. Okay, until the next episode for Story Smack, we will talk to you all real soon. Real soon. Good day. Bye. Love you. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.